From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm Peter Hartlaub, pop culture critic of the San Francisco Chronicle, here with Mick LaSalle for Movies with Mick LaSalle, and Rob Morris is here for Lieber Hertz. Welcome, Mick and Rob. Hi. It's good hey, to be here. how's it going? Yeah, doing well. Quentin Tarantino Day. I can't wait to see this film. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm going to start with a Quentin Tarantino question, because that's the bulk of this episode. Might be two different questions. Do you remember watching your first Tarantino film, and do you remember when you realized he was really good? Start with you, Mick. Uh, yeah, well, I knew I was alerted to the idea that this guy was good by the Roxy that sh- the Roxy Cinema, which showed Reservoir Dogs, and I realized he was good when Michael Madsen started cutting off that guy's ear. That that's when I knew he was good. Reservoir Dogs, yeah, yeah. very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah good one, Rob. Uh, for me, it was Pulp Fiction, the first one I saw, but it, it wasn't so much what I was seeing, but what I was hearing. His use of music, I thought, was different and smart. Like I, I th- the thing that caught me so much was "Flowers in the Wall," Styler Brothers. Like the way he used it in the film, I'd never heard of it. Recontextualized the song for me, and I was like, "This guy knows what the hell he's doing." Yeah, I remember seeing Pulp Fiction in a crappy multiplex, and I had two thoughts: I need to see this in a good theater. And every film director who's making a film right now who's seeing this is probably just crying, crying themselves <laughs> to sleep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, excellent episode today. Uh, we've already recorded it. We always reveal that, Mick. It yeah, seems yeah. like people should know the truth that we record the episode oh, yeah. before we record the intro. Um, there's a discussion about the lesser Tarantino years and why critics liked him anyway. I really like your take on that. And there's a great story ahead about a Tarantino panel involving the obscure Italian director. I'm going to get it wrong. Sergio Corbucci. Sergio Corbucci <laughs> comes up in this episode. Great episode. Datebook Podcast. Thanks for listening. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Well, hello, everybody. This is Mick LaSalle, and welcome to Moves with Mick LaSalle. I'm Mick LaSalle, and I am with not Lieber Hertz, my former editor, but with my current editor, my once and future editor, uh, Rob Morris. Hey, Rob. Hey, how's it going, man? Uh, it's going pretty good. I uh, actually saw a good movie lately. Yeah, I read the review. Yeah. I liked it. You know, people... Uh, Why don't we tell them what it is? Yeah, we're gonna t- yeah, I guess Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And uh, it's funny, you know, everywhere I go... Uh, if well, if people really know me, they don't even ask. But if people sort of casually know me, and they 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 always ask, "What movie should I go see?" And for a while, I really haven't had anything to say. But now I do. So once upon well, a time in Hollywood, you weren't sending people to crawl. I was I, no, I was not, Peter was sending people to crawl. It was that maybe. Did not screen for critics. Oh, did not so, screen for yeah, critics. Okay. Yeah. It was very good, though. It was. Send people to crawl. That's, okay. That's hey, everybody, go see crawl. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, even there, there are things that I give good reviews to 
that I would, you know, it's a different, to me, it's like a higher order of thing when somebody says, what should I see as opposed to what's good? You know, what's good is a little bit different than what should I see? What's good be like, it's good on its own terms. Yeah, it's, you know, they, they did a good job, but should you get up, leave the house, go see it? So now I have an answer, which is good. You know, in reading review, I know what you liked about it. But for the people who are listening who haven't read it, it, tell us why it's so good. Why are you recommending this movie for everyone to see? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think this is, I mean, I think this is the first, sometimes over the course of, over course of a year, you know, I'm thinking, critics actually think of their top tens. They massage their top tens. It's really kind of pathetic how we think of our top tens. It's like we're going out with our top tens. It's like really, it's like, yeah, it's like, it's like, our, it's like, it's like our, pillow or something but anyway we think about these top tens and a lot of times I think well is this going to be on the top ten is and I haven't had an answer I haven't been for sure like what's going on this is this is one for the top ten for sure it would have to be a great year and this is why um, this it's not I don't think it's it's not like a dazzling succession of amazing scenes like in glorious bastards um, but it's a surprisingly, a, a surprisingly warm movie uh, about two guys who are friends. It's a, it's a very loving recreation of the era of the nineteen of the late nineteen sixties of nineteen sixty nine specifically. And I think that it and it's and I don't want to get into too much here, but it has in common with *Inglorious Bastards* and *Django Unchained* a quality of, of looking back with regret on history in a rather sensitive way. And so that World uh, Inglorious Bastards made you feel bad about World War II. I mean, World War II was the worst thing that ever happened, but we've kind of gotten used to it, especially we've gotten used to it because of all the movies that have been made, and, and it's, it just seems all almost pre-digested before it gets to us. And, uh, but, it, but by approaching it differently, he made us feel that again, and now with this, this Sharon Tate murder, which of course has been a fact of history for 50 years, it suddenly becomes this thing that, that you could feel bad about. Uh, and I think that there's just something, what, something of what he's doing is, is roping in an emotion. And I, I'm not even sure how he does it, honestly. The thing I kind of wonder with all these films you're, you're mentioning by Quentin Tarantino, it's like he's his last several films seem to be touching on some of the darkest moments in American history. Yes. And it's like so so from his perspective, like what is he doing? Like is he looking for ways to understand these? Is he looking for ways for us to find a different perspective on them, some kind of forgiveness in them? You know what I mean? Like or is yeah. he just simply trying to revise history and say, I don't like the way it was, man. I, let, let, let's let's I, make it how I wanted it to be, not I, how it should be. Right? I think it's a little of that. I think it's a little of that. Um I think that he has he he has a love of of movies that is really intense. I mean, really intense. And 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 he's he, I mean, he's very clearly an odd guy. When you see him in interviews, him he's just a he's a. Have you interviewed him? I have interviewed him. I liked him. I, I interviewed him when he did uh, Pulp Fiction. He's a he's a pleasant guy, but he's an odd sort of guy. And he he seems to have a a real personal connection with genres and with movies. And I think that he. The movies are to an extent his world, and he would like the world to behave according to the rules of the world of movies. And and so I think when you get the, the collision of history and Tarantino, you get um, him 
wishing that the world could work out the way the 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 way movies work out. I think it's interesting, and to clarify, just for the record, I haven't yet to see Once yeah. Upon a Time in Hollywood, but I, I kind of go the opposite direction with you on this. Yeah, what's that? Is I almost think that he's looking at the movies that are about these topics, like World War Two, yeah, that you know, slavery in America in the eighteen hundreds, um, the Charles Manson era. And it's almost like he's showing us these views of what it really was, not what Hollywood thought it was. Yeah. You know, he's showing some of the darkness and depravity and sometimes some of the, the gallows humor that I think Hollywood often ignores in trying to recreate this romanticism of these times. I think it's true, too. I think it's true, too. Um, yes, and in fact, if you look at Django, uh, Django preceded 12 Years a Slave by about a year. And when I saw Django, I, I, one of the things I, I said in the review and, and thought that was really striking is, oh, finally somebody's making a movie about how slavery was bad. I mean, you think, you know, that, that should be pretty <laughs> obvious, right? But yeah. it took an English guy a year later to make this serious drama about how slavery was bad. But actually Tarantino made, made it a year earlier, and I think in a, I think in a much more entertaining and, and interesting way. Um, and yeah, and he is getting into stuff in his films about how things really were. I think less so, uh, less so with this. I, I think this is it's it's more of a, uh, it's it, it's less of a dark vision. Although although, um, the vision of Los Angeles and Hollywood is is worth talking about. And I, I was only able to get into it a little bit. Um, okay, so. I was able to say the first part, but I wasn't able to say the second part. Okay, so here's the first part. The first part is that um, you you get most critiques of Hollywood, most movies about Hollywood, like to emphasize how, how empty it is, the emptiness of Hollywood. And Tarantino is happy to show you the emptiness of Hollywood, but then he also shows you that that filling the emptiness is a lot of human aspiration. It's a lot of belief. It's a lot of hope. It's a lot of in, investing in these things. And so that, and so that it, it does have a kind of meaning, but it's just the meaning of people loving it, maybe, or the, or the meaning of, of investing, of just of human aspiration being, being so wrapped up in it, so that it does have some meaning. So that it's not entirely empty. It's, it's empty, but in a in a more noble sort of way or a more decent, decent way. The Ooh. second, oh yeah. Oh good. No, yeah. jump in though. No, no, no. I'll get to the second I thing. I forgot you had a second point. Oh, okay, okay. The, se- the second thing I wanted to say because I didn't get to it in the review is that he's, he is talking about though the Manson thing and the Manson thing, which I didn't really get into too much uh, in the review is, is of course entirely evil and and Tarantino is seeing it also kind of as a product of Los Angeles. Um, he does twin, he does uh, two shots that are meant to recall each other. Um, and I think Justin Chang said it was kind of like a foot fetishist movie, but you know, he's joking around. He's the <laughs> LA Times guy. Um, but there's a, at one point, uh, Sharon Tate, who's Margot Robbie, is, watching, is sitting in a movie theater watching herself on screen. Although, Interestingly, say by way of just tangentially, it's Margot Robbie actually watching the real Sharon Tate uh, 
because in that movie, Sharon Tate was wearing glasses, she was wearing a hat, and it was possible to maybe mistake them. But I think that Tarantino doesn't even want you to mistake them. I, I think he wants you to be in that double reality of watching somebody inhabit, the, and also and also just the tribute aspect of seeing the real Sharon Tate. But at one point, as as Margot Robbie is sitting there watching her fake self, she puts her feet up, her bare feet up on the chair in front, and you see the back of her feet. Then about 20 minutes later, half hour later, um, Brad Pitt is driving around. He picks up a hitchhiker who's one of the um, Manson family, who's played by Margaret Qualley, who was in uh, Novitiate, played the, the young nun in Novitiate. And she puts her feet up on the dashboard, and her feet are a wreck because it's like she's been walking all day, you know, barefoot. And there's a kind of feeling that, I mean, it's just a little thing, but it's like both of these women went out into the desert that is L.A., and one came back with this idyllic thing, and the other came back with this bad thing. And it's a sort of a, an, just the idea of like people going out into the desert to create themselves out of nothing. And sometimes what they create, and, it, and it's, it's not even out of nothing. It's out of their own fantasies and their own self-aggrandizement, their own wish to be big, you know. And sometimes it works out, in the case for Sharon Tate, and sometimes it turns into something curdled and dangerous and weird. And that's L.A. too. So it's not just a sugar-coated thing. I think my review is a little bit more positive than I should have probably put that in, too. Yeah, you should have. I love that. Yeah, I know. You know, if you would have done that, I would have called you and be like, this is a great point, man. Yeah, I know. But there I think it's like touching <laughs> – the feet thing is interesting to me because it's like, you know, for years Tarantino has been accused of being a foot fetishist. Yeah, but yeah. It's like, like – so one of the things that makes his movies so fulfilling and I think engaging is that he's so adept at, at – creating these nuances that just resonate with you you know yeah. with the human experience and feet is a way to do it i mean like like if you're walking around san francisco right yeah and it's like you know obviously there are homeless people here and they're also right. you know rich hipster people who look homeless yeah and the way that you can tell the difference between them is you look at their feet oh because wow. one of them has you know beat up shoes beat up feet the other has manicured feet nice shoes you know expensive shoes that kind of thing yeah but it's like that's one of the ways that he tells the the human state of his characters and with, that's with, really true because yeah. in this case he that's what he that's but also think, what he's doing just think back basically. to kill bill you know it's yeah. like like the first time we saw uma thurman's character move were her toes twitching i believe yeah you know it's like he gets back to that ground level of humanity yeah and he tells his story upward from that yeah you know he's a genius i think he's really you know uh yeah i mean it, it, well no it, tell me i'm wrong well no no i'm not gonna tell you you're wrong because the guy's made I think three masterpieces out of four, and Hateful Eight is a good movie. You're talking about like in the last ten years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, in the last ten years, he's made four movies and three like masterpieces, and they're and they're like masterpieces from Jupiter. I mean, and this one is even. I mean, and if the first two, like Django and um, and and Inglorious Bastards, are sort of from the same universe, and this one's like from another planet altogether, because this one is really, really making its own rules. I mean, he knows. He knows, he knows two things, which I say in the review. He knows, first off, that you know it's going to some, it's going to get to a dramatic place because you know that it's a Sharon Tate thing. So you know something's going to have to happen to do with the Manson family. So you're not worried that you're watching a movie and nothing's going to happen, which a lot of times viewers say, oh, what's going on? People, you know it's going on sort of because it's heading there. And you also know, he also knows that 
you're not really looking forward to anything bad happening to anybody. You don't really want to see that. So he has license to digress. And so he digresses all over the place. I mean, you see, uh, for example, the cowboy actor pl- uh, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. He's on the set. He's making, he, he's, make, he's doing a show. He's doing multiple takes of a thing. You see flashbacks to Brad Pitt's earlier life, his character. And it's all unrelated. And if you, like, if, if you were um, somebody looking at somebody's screenplay, according to the conventional rules of things, and you think, uh, oh, well, this doesn't belong. This doesn't advance the story. This doesn't advance it. Nothing advances the story. But it, it advances just, you don't mind watching it. First of all, the thing that makes him brilliant is that these scenes are all good. Every one of them is good. Uh, like at one point, Leonardo DiCaprio has this conversation with an eight-year-old girl. It goes on for about 10 minutes. It's really good. You know, it, it's interesting. You could cut that out of the movie, but there's no reason to. It's really good. So, yeah, I guess, I mean, I the thing about Tarantino is that at f- I think in the beginning, he had a great start. He had a great start. He uh, he did uh, Reservoir Dogs. He wrote the, the screenplay to True Romance, which is a wonderful movie. Uh, and then he made Pulp Fiction. So, I mean, he was great. And then... I think that a, I think a lot of critics were intimidated by the fact that he was so talented, but the talent is not always the same as results. And right, I think right, a right. lot of his movies for about ten years weren't any good. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But I got to get back. So, how are the critics intimidated by his talent? Like, shouldn't the critics be praising the talent? Well, what happens is they get intimidated by the talent, so they praise it, and they don't they 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 write uh, you they review the talent rather than the result of the talent. So, you know, you see a movie like Kill Bill One. That's not a movie I liked. Did you like it? Did you see it? No, I thought they were fun, but I didn't really yeah. think they were great films. I like Kill Bill 2 a little bit better than Kill Bill 1, but I thought it should have been one movie. But anyway, so I didn't like Kill Bill 1. I thought uh, Jackie Brown was okay. It was okay. Uh, uh, the two mo- the movie, the Grindhouse thing he did, I wasn't crazy about. I love those things, but they're not great cinema. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so I, 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 I would watch this, and, and I would you know I would see, I'd read reviews sometimes, and, and I'd say, well, yeah, they, they're, they, it's, look, it's one, when you're reviewing something, right, a lot of critics adopt the attitude, which is not appropriate, of assuming that they are smarter than the people who are making a movie. And, of course, that in most That never happens. Yeah. In most cases, the people making the movie, you know, they're making a movie for a reason. Uh, and a lot of times, they're very smart. Not all the time, but a lot of times. But then you reach a level where you're Scorsese or you're Tarantino or you're something, and then... The critics are afraid to get into the ring with the guy because they know that he that that Tarantino is smarter about movies definitely than they are, and so it 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 makes them tighten up. Also, to this human laziness, it is much easier when you're dealing with a Scorsese, a Coppola, a Tarantino, to just say it's good, because otherwise you have to work a little bit harder to say it's bad. Most of the time, you have to work harder to say it's good. With everybody else, but with them, no, because everybody says, "Oh, they're, they're good," and then you just write it. So I think a lot of things contributed to uh, Tarantino getting a pretty easy ride f- between Pulp Fiction and Inglorious Bastards. You know, a lot of things: human laziness, but also intimidation, all these little negative emotions, and also too, maybe they met him, they like him. I mean, he, I liked him too. You know, I like the guy. He, he's a very likable guy, actually. But finally, in, in 2009, when he made Inglorious Bastards, it was like, 
oh, wow. I mean, he not only has made a movie as good as Pulp Fiction, he's he's made a movie that's better and that's like on a on a, a dimension of of humanity that's different. And then he follows it up with Django. And it's like, yeah, so if you want to call him a genius, that's okay with me. Uh, because what, you, you can call him a genius, you can call him a guy who keeps making great movies. <laughs> yeah. Either one is all right with me because he's making great movies. The idea that this guy's going to stop making movies and he's like, what, 57 or something? Yeah, that doesn't that doesn't please me at all. No, it's annoying because it's like if he holds true to what he's been saying and that he'll quit after 10 films, yeah. it's like I believe he's attached to, to do a Star Trek film. Yeah. That would be number 10. That will be 10. I don't want him to end on a Star Trek movie. He's got to end on a Tarantino movie. Yeah, and that's I, right. You know, of course, it'll be his kind of movie. I mean, he's not going to make, like, you know, some version of Star Trek that we're used to. It's going to be whatever his vision of it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. But it still is a franchise movie. It's I don't want him franchise. going out on that. Yeah, I don't want him going out on that either. But, you know, so I don't think he's going out. I mean, so Steven Soderbergh retired, and that lasted that lasted about 10 minutes. Yeah. Uh, I think, just, I think he'll write I, a novel. And, here's what I want him to do, actually, yeah. going back to critics, is I want him to quit and become a film critic. Like, oh, wow. I think he would be excellent. And I'd love to read it. It's, and I think he'd have no problem, like, savaging a film or a director. And I think he'd have no problem calling other critics out for being bozos. You know, you know? It's, it's funny. Tarantino, uh, about uh, 10 years ago, uh, I was supposed to be on this panel. Uh, to, and then I, I decided not to because I was working on my, my French ladies' books. I had to do interviews in Paris. I didn't go. But Tarantino was going to the Venice Film Festival. And he told everybody that he wanted to have a panel with critics to talk about the work of Sergio Corbucci, which nobody had heard of. Right? I don't know who that yeah, is. He's like, he's supposed to be the second best. They think he's referred to, he's referred to in, um, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as a spaghetti Western guy. And I heard people in the audience laughing because I think they thought that he, they meant that he was, they, that was like making up a fake name for Sergio Leone. But no, there's a real Sergio Corbucci. And he wanted to do this whole thing. And so all these critics who are on this panel knocked themselves out seeing Sergio Corbucci movies, which are not easy to get. I wasn't there, fortunately. And, uh, and then on the day of, he just decided not to go to the panel. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so you had all these critics talking about Sergio Corbucci. And it's, he's known within the, as the second best maker of, of, of Spaghetti West. I think to I think that becoming a, a, a film critic for him, you know, he 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 should write maybe a, a movie a a book uh, about movies. It wouldn't be bad. Truffaut did it. Wouldn't be a bad idea. But I think that the real the real good career path for a film critic is to be a politician first, because Willie Brown is doing it. You ever oh. see Willie Brown's thing? He does yeah. it. Uh, yeah, I like what he does. I, I actually like what he does. I think it would be a come down. I mean, I, I, if he wants me to switch, I'd, I'd love to. I'd rather make a movie. You know, I mean, I'd love to make oh, a movie. This is great. What, what, what movie are you making? I don't know. I, well, I, I could figure it out. Give me a budget. I, I think. I, okay, you got nine million. What are you making? Well, I wrote a musical when I was <laughs> when I when I was a, a young man, and so I would I would do I would do I would do a, a film version of the musical. You gonna get Ewan McGregor in there or what? I don't know. I'd have to. No, it'd be. I, I would do. That's what I would do. I mean, if I if I had limited, I mean, you know, it's a it's a musical. It would be set a long time. It would be too expensive to make, so I'd have to make something else. But yeah, if you but gave me a but, oh, you told, did you just give me only nine million? Yeah, see, that's the thing. You have to be an inventive director. Yeah, you got to figure out yeah, a way yeah, to make yeah. that nine million work for yeah, your I vision. Need, I need about twenty-five. I think. Yeah, we don't know you. You're not going to yeah. get twenty-five. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we read your reviews, man. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, actually, yeah, that would be. Yeah, it would be. It would. It would be hard. People. It's interesting, though. I mean. 
it is possible to make that transition. Uh, Francois Truffaut, of course, and all those guys in France did it. But French, Francois Truffaut had this weird thing where uh, he was banned from the Cannes Film Festival in, like, I think, 1958. And in 1959, he was debuting The 400 Blows there. But if you are a film critic, you basically have pissed off everybody, even people that you like and have praised half the time because you've wound up pissing them off. So it would not be an easy transition in the United States. It might, but on the other hand, I can't imagine the French people are any nicer. <laughs> in different ways. In I different they're ways. just more direct. The French people love contention, though. They really actually, they love getting into arguments. I think that's one of the things that Americans misunderstand about the French. Because yeah. the French people will come up to you and they'll, they'll say some confrontational thing, and, and Americans will see it as hostility, and French people will see it as the beginning of a discussion. Yeah, like as I mentioned to you, I've got some of my best friends are from France. Oh, yeah? It's a couple, yeah. And, you know, they're going to these these serious arguments about something with with my wife and I, you know? And then it's over, and they're like, okay, love you, bye. Yeah. You know, they don't hold a grudge. It's no, just, they don't hold a grudge. It's just discourse. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I have a friend that, that I, I think I told you, I have a friend that I uh, I was berating because he voted for Trump. I haven't talked to this guy for three years. He's still mad at me. This is a guy I know for 40 years. It ain't worth it. Um, and it, Yeah, it, it bothers me. But anyhow. So you, something uh, else has been bothering you lately, yeah, it seems what else? like. All yeah, right, tell so, me. So you've got this column coming out soon. Yes. I started reading it this afternoon before the podcast. Oh, great. And it's about how there just aren't that many great movies this year. In fact, you're saying that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the first great film of 2019. Yeah, it might be. Yeah, no, I think it is. First great, yeah. Uh, f- I mean, everything else that's that's been out so far, because we've had some good movies, I think the most you can hope for is that they might be like eighth or ninth on a top ten. Like a movie like The Farewell is a you know, really good movie, uh, but it's not top five, certainly. Um, and then you get a lot of these these small movies that, that North well, Dakota movie, Little yeah, Woods. I was going to say, before we get, get going, what yeah. are, so far what are the films you think are, are in contention for your top ten? Uh, in contention? Yeah. I mean, that, like, that have been yeah. released. Oh, that have been released, yeah. I mean, in contention would be like Diane, which was a small budget movie, Mustang, which was... You made five million dollars. It was that French movie that was beautifully directed mm-hmm. about the prisoners working with horses. Uh, Wild Nights with em- Emily, which is a weird movie about Emily Dickinson and her relationship with a woman that might have actually been a lesbian relationship. Um, but these are not. I mean, I hope they're not on the top ten. The one I I know is going to be on the top ten for sure is is what I said is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, what about but, the Farewell? Yeah. Uh, the farewell, and maybe that'll be like ninth or tenth. Another one you seem to like a lot. I can't remember how you rated it, but uh, was it Her Smell? Was Elizabeth Moss? Yeah. Okay. Her Smell. I gave a little man clapping because it's definitely a good or even very good movie, but I don't necessarily think that's top ten. I mean that that could be. Peter and I like to have like an eccentric tenth choice, and um, that could be my tenth choice, but really. It's just that she's so great in it. It's a great performance, but I'm glad you remembered that. I almost mentioned her smell, but then I thought I, in that piece, but then I thought I'm going to get into, I'm going to start talking about performances, and then this piece is going to run longer than it's supposed mm-hmm. to. Actually, there's another movie like her smell, not anything like her smell, but the same kind of deal where the movie's good, but the performance is great, and that's the uh, the Wage Go Bernadette with uh, Kate Blanchett. Yeah. 
Uh, so that's you know terrific performance, and which that has not solid. been released yet. Not been released. Yeah, no, next month. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, a couple of weeks. Yeah. Oh yeah, it is next month. Yeah. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> to so, so much. Yeah. So okay. what is, you're saying? It's like like in your your column you talk about how last year was a stronger year for for film. So are are we looking at a weak year in 2019, or are we just looking at it's been it's being backloaded? Like, is the greatness going to come as it often does toward the last quarter of the year? I have to think. Yeah. I mean. I, what I did was I said, okay, well, let me let me take a look, you know, because the tendency when you look back on a year, you don't really remember when things were released. Like, um, for example, what was it? Oh, yeah, Blind Spotting, and which I uh, loved. I love that movie. It. It's a great movie. I don't understand why you know it was like kind of ignored. Blind Spotting, great movie, and I really liked. Also, made my top ten was Mission Impossible Fallout. They were released on the same day. I didn't remember that at all. So, anyhow, I went back. Yeah, but you you don't go by release dates. You're going by screenings. You know yeah, what I mean, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I probably saw them two weeks apart. That's a good. That's a, that, that's very true. Um, so anyway, by last year, I had four movies that I considered for my top twenty that had already come out. Uh, this year, I look and I see only like two movies, or you know, really two. Well, no. I had four movies that I knew were probably going to be in my top ten, really probably. I only have one that I feel that way about. Uh, but then I looked and and I saw that every other important movie got released afterwards, even even um, like starting like a week later. I, you know, what I do is in the column I go by August 4th, 2008, 2018, because the column's running on August 4th, 2019. And it was like August 10th we got um, Black Klansman. And then, so then it starts, and then it's just one good thing after another. Uh, I saw, you know, I saw, uh, in September, uh, or actually it was late August. I saw it, uh, uh, *Stars Born*, uh, *First Man*, and then it's just so. *First Man* didn't get enough play, man. I love that movie. That was a good movie. Um, and then a lot of, th- and then there were things that I didn't like, but that were important movies, like *If Beale Street Could Talk*. Uh, Vice. These are movies that I didn't particularly like, but that were in contention for awards. But then a bunch of movies that I did like, like The Favorite and uh, Green Book. And I mean, really, I, I list them in the column. It's like 10, bi- oh, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Big, big movies. So it's kind of nice to think of it that way. First off, it means that probably, you know, probably we're going to see a you know bunch of great movies if, if it follows. But also it, it means that you know, we got something to look forward to um, because, you know, it's fun. It's it's fun this time. It, I, I don't even, I don't think of it as, I generally don't think of it as fun. I generally think it was like, I'm back from vacation and now I have to work again. But <laughs> You got the job everyone dreams about, man. Come on. Yeah. I have the job everyone dreams about because what they dream about is going to the movies. Yeah, they don't dream about writing in a deadline. They don't. Yeah. They don't dream about always having four term papers to do at any given yeah. point. They don't dream it's about not, me calling you up and going, "Hey, why'd you say this when you should have said this, man?" I never mind. I never yeah. mind. I love. I, I. I never mind. I never mind editors. I, the only time I mind editors is when they're, um, is when they call up and they say, "You have the wrong opinion because you didn't write my opinion," and you don't do that. Bob Graham didn't do the late great Bob Graham didn't do that and Lieber Hurston didn't do that and those are the real those are the three people I've worked with but every so often you know I hear people like that, that's the only thing that's bad but hearing from editors about about why didn't you say it this way or could you say it this way I don't mind that because usually it gets better honestly yeah. it usually gets better it's a little bit of a nuisance but it's a good nuisance it's like exercising or something it's good 
Um, no, it's it's look. I'm not complaining. I'm not. Well, I'm mildly complaining. It's it's the harder time of the year in a way because if you're sitting down to to explain why a great movie is great, and then the next thing you have to do is explain why a great movie is great, like it it's actually harder because every great movie is like. Um, it, it, you have to. Dis- it's like a world you have to describe that has never existed before. Whereas every bad movie is like an imitation of something, usually, and so everybody knows what you're talking about. But with Tarantino, I mean, it's not that he's self-referential, but he seems to have a style that's contained to itself. So, like, yeah. like when you're describing a film like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, do you feel like it is a continuation of this previous idea, if or, I, or aesthetic, perhaps? I, if I was watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that's an interesting question. Well, it's it's an interesting question that leads me to ask to refine the question in this way, which I think maybe would be interesting to look at. And um, first of all, would I is it enough like other Tarantino movies that I know that it was a Tarantino movie? I think I might at a certain point because there's a certain audacity about it. It's like, wow, he really thinks he can do that, and wow, he can do that. He's getting away with it because he's so good he can do it. I think I would figure it out in about half hour. Um, but aside from like that, like a certain style and a certain style of dialogue and a certain feeling, the actual look of this movie and the way the soundscape and the the way it's filmed, you wouldn't know. I mean, it's different from his other movies. He really he makes a movie. In fact, the last shot of this movie, and I'm not going to say what it's of, but the last shot of this movie is some overhead shot with music playing that sounds almost like the music from, from like, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf or something. It's like that kind of shot where you pull back overhead, and it's straight out of the 60s. I don't know where I've seen it before, but I've seen it. It's like you look at it with such recognition. But as a result, of being like the 60s, it's not like his other movies, you know? And, and, and to get deeper into that, in your review you talk about how it's not just the visual presentation, like it's almost like this aural assault at times. You're saying the Total. sound quality is is terrible in an old way, yeah, the way yeah, it sounded yeah. back in 67 or whatever. It's harsh, yeah. So in, in your mind, is he doing that as a way to re- recreate the moment, or is he doing that to accentuate like the violence, the impending doom, the you know uh, unwieldy catharsis of like a Manson? I think that he's doing it to recreate it but it didn't occur to me but I think that that's totally reasonable I mean I don't necessarily think that it's it's de- as general I mean I don't think it's as specific as Manson but it's definitely as general as a feeling for the chaos of another era because one of the things that we do when we remember old times even if like if, if you look at the World War II movies made in the 90s you know they kind of make sense the world makes sense the first half hour of Saving Private Ryan is pretty chaotic but then the rest of it makes sense you know the rest of it's kind of Spielberg in a light sort of way um, but was that the first film you saw that made you feel like like this is war like that opening yeah. scene of Private Ryan? Sure, because I've never been to a, in a war. I haven't either. You know, guys who've been in a war say that that's like nothing. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. They say that it's, it's much worse than that. Um, but anyway, yeah, I think he's trying to make you feel the chaos of it. He's trying to make you feel just the chaos of the era, the kind of beauty and the, the, and the strange abrasiveness of it. And I have to say, you know, I was uh, 10 years old that summer. 
and it really wait, wait which summer man 69 yeah okay. yeah and it sounded it sounded like 1969 but if you asked me before like what 1969 sounded like i wouldn't have said that you know what i mean it's like it brought it back it was like it was just like it was like getting thrown back into a into a a a like a cold it was like a, it was like a cold bath of it rather than a warm bath of it it's like bam it's like in your face and uh, yeah this is what the world sounded like and it's a little bit uh it's a little, it's 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 um it's strange it it's not it's not cozy it's not nostalgic it's 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 weird yeah it's a real imagine it's like alien one of the things I like about you as a critic is that, I mean, you recognize that and reward that in some ways. You know, there's so many people who are like these mechanical reviews or they want to review the sound quality through like, you know, one of George Lucas's sound systems. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like, they, yeah. I think they'd hear that and just be like, oh, this is crap. Yeah. I but, th- do you know what the, the critical reception has been so far? Have you looked? I think it's, I think it's last I saw, I thought it was 80, 80 something on Rotten Tomatoes. Okay. Well, that's not bad. You get a, some percent of people who agree on something. I mean, that it, and it's, I mean, you know, God, uh, for Citizen Kane, they, it would be 100% because nobody has to think about it anymore. But for this, this is something you have to wrestle with. And so if Citizen came out today, would it be 100% consensus? No, no, no. But if Citizen, Kane, but if everybody knows this is Citizen Kane, then it gets 100%. That's interesting. Yeah. Cause well, it goes back would, to the lazy criticism thing. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. You know, I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not without my own lazinesses, I guess. But there's a certain kind of... We were talking about this one time. I mean, the hardest thing it is to th- is to allow yourself to think. You know, people will do anything to not think. And a lot of times, if before you write something, if you just allow yourself to think for five minutes, that's all it takes. I mean, five minutes. Because you're going to be writing this thing for two hours or longer, you know, if it's a big movie. You just say, let me just calm down and not write right away. And let me just think. And you just force yourself to do that. You kind of clear away a lot of uh, bad impulses. Well, I, I kind of disagree. I mean, I, I think that's true to a point. But I'm going back to my days as a writer and also like, like coaching writers. It's I often think they think too much. Oh, really? You know, and they can't turn that off. I think like like the best way to get in the writing state is to almost clear your brain. Clear your brain. You know, and it becomes like these, you know, you, you have an outline that you've been thinking about and yeah. you think your subconscious can drive you through it. Yeah. But I think so often... Some writers, they, they think too much. They're thinking too much about every word, every line, every graph, every segue. Yeah, you can't be thinking about the writing. No. You can't, can't be thinking about the writing. I think you can think and about I think, the ideas. And I think they're thinking about how the writing will be received. Oh, ooh, you can't think about no. that. Yeah, yeah, like, like trying to be funny. Ooh, you can't try to be funny. That's the least funny thing in the world. I can't stop thinking about Tarantino as a critic. Tar- oh, I mean, even if he was a critic, like, like who cares? I mean, also <laughs> no. I mean, it's just such a small thing compared to. I mean, I, well, look, I I would love to agree with Oscar Wilde. When Oscar Wilde was a critic, he would and 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 to an extent, this is true. I mean, I I do believe this. There's a work of art, then the critic comes along and creates the second work of art based on the first work of art. Ideally, yeah. Well, it could be a lesser work. I mean, it's definitely going to be lesser, but yeah. it could. Be, it's definitely a parasitic work of art. <laughs> you know, it's definitely a parasitic work of art. But it could be, it could be a bad work of art. It could be a great work of art. It could be a good work of art. You know, the, what the critic writes. And Oscar Wilde was saying that the critic is therefore superior to. You know, he was figuring out a way. And then, of course, when he became a playwright, then he decided that that was not the case. But I would love to like feel that as fiercely. But the truth is that. 
that this movie is going to, if, if the world remains anything resembling the world now, anything resembling the world now, resembles the world in the way that like, the world of 100 years ago resembles the world now, this movie will still be watched and talked about. The reviews will not be, unless the reviews were negative, because the reviews are generally not resurrected except to show what an idiot either the reviewer was yeah. or the people of the times were in not appreciating this work of genius. That's how you get, you know, that's, that Bosley Crowther, poor Bosley Crowther in the New York Times, he is just resurrected all the time in, in film history after film history for bad reviews that he wrote, just stupid reviews. And it's, it's a terrible, it's a bad immortality. It's better to just be forgotten altogether. Uh, Rob, do you have anything to add? No, really, just keep reading Mick LaSalle. A fine sentiment to end yeah. on. Anyway, so uh, come back in about two weeks for another fine episode of Movies with Mick LaSalle. For the San Francisco Chronicle and for Rob Morris, I am Mick LaSalle. See you later. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to Mick LaSalle and Rob Morris. Our producer today is me, Peter Hartlob. Supervising producers are King Kaufman and Libby Coleman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke. And our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Music is Midnight Special by Ease Jammy Jams. Read our columns and subscribe to the Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S.